0: You can cut down a hickory tree and, oh my gosh, many times I've seen deer devour the hickory leaves off of sprouts coming up off of hickory stumps. But when there are many other things available that they would rather have, of course, you won't see them browsing on hickory as often then.
1: Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and man, it is hard to believe it's already 2022. Uh, I hope you guys had a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I know deer season is wrapped up in a lot of states, so some of you are probably already feeling that loss a little bit already. Uh, I have a few days left to go here in Georgia as I record this, but... Uh, it's yet to be seen if I actually get back out any, but I definitely can't complain uh, with how my season went this fall. Uh, I was able to kill two nice bucks off my 15 acre property here, uh, one with the bow and, and one with the rifle, which man, that was the first buck I'd kill with the rifle in a in a long time, so that was uh, that was pretty cool. But hey, if you'd like to follow along with some of the progress of the, the work I'm doing here on this property, I've kind of been documenting that uh, in our magazine, on our website, as well as on our YouTube channel. And actually, we we just dropped a new video on our YouTube channel from this 15-acre Fixer Upper Series. That's what we're calling it. Uh, you can check that out. It'll just uh, kind of give you a little bit of an idea of the progress over the last year on the property, as well as uh, some of the details of how my season just went. So if that's something that interests you, be sure to check that out on YouTube. Uh, now, with season wrapping up, I'm already turning my attention to some habitat projects with the primary focus being some much needed forest stand improvement work here in the the hardwoods portion of our property. And so I thought, you know, who better to have on the show this week than Dr. Craig Harper of the University of Tennessee to talk about forest stand, the whole forest stand improvement process and how to create a deer haven in these hardwoods. So Craig's a wealth of information and he he just always does a phenomenal job of presenting that in a way that's uh, both entertaining and and easy to understand. So I know you guys are going to enjoy that conversation Uh, before we get started though. This week's episode is brought to you by longtime NDA partner, redneck blinds, uh, America's leading manufacturer of high quality hunting blinds designed for hunters by hunters. So if you're in the market for a a new hunting blind, be sure to check out our friends at Redneck Blinds at redneckblinds.com. Just a reminder, too, we are still offering our discounted NDA membership for podcast listeners. So, uh, hey, why not kick off the new year with a National Deer Association membership? You can just go to our website at deerassociation.com, click on that join or renew button at the top. And use the promo code podcast. That's going to save you five dollars off an annual membership, and you'll in addition, you'll get a great looking NDA cap to go with it. And I know a bunch of you have already taken advantage of that offer, and we truly appreciate your support. But if you haven't, hey, head over there again. Uh, start the new year off right with a membership to the NDA. And guys, with that, hey, we're going to jump on the phone here with Dr. Craig Harper and talk about four stand improvement. Uh, Craig, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Brian, how are you? I, I'm doing well, and uh, I I appreciate you taking time out to uh, jump on the phone here with me to talk about some forest stand improvement work. Yeah, happy to do so. Yeah, yeah. As I mentioned, you know, before we started recording here, I, I've been looking forward to this conversation because uh, I actually am getting ready to kind of start this process here on my own little 15 acre tract. Uh, just got my my herbicide in here recently so i'm getting ready to start cutting and killing some hardwoods so this is uh this is going to be the perfect time to to kind of have this discussion with you yeah you can make a big difference yeah yeah i'm i am looking forward to it because uh well we'll we'll get into it here as the discussion goes on but yeah my my property is in in dire need of some forest stand improvement so (laughs) um now I, i feel like You know, most of our listeners are probably going to be familiar with who you are and and a lot of them probably, you know, either read some of your articles or your books or or maybe seen you in some of some videos uh, or maybe in person at one of our Deer Stewart courses. But uh, for those who who may not be familiar with uh, Dr. Craig Harper, can you just just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you do for the University of Tennessee?
0: I'm a professor of wildlife management in the Department of Forestry, Wildlife and Fisheries and the Extension Wildlife Specialist. And so my responsibilities are to assist in wildlife programming throughout the state and beyond the state especially with regard to helping natural resource professionals such as biologists, managers with state wildlife agencies, NRCS, the Forest Service, etc. So I do a lot of work working with natural resource professionals with regard to training. Uh, Of course, I conduct research, lead graduate students, and most all of our research is is applied management in nature. And then deliver that information, uh, of course, through the network of extension agents throughout the state. And then provide that information, whether it be in publications or uh, digital format, whatever it may be to, you know, whoever is interested, whether that be extension people or landowners or whoever. And uh, yeah, that reaches lots of people all over the place. So it's, it's good. It's very rewarding. And uh, UT has been very good to me. It's been a good place to work and been a good, been a good time. Yeah. Yep. And I know
1: as part of that, you've been, you know, a big part of our, of NDA's educational efforts over the years, you know, speaking at our national conventions and, and teaching in our deer Stewart courses and writing all kinds of articles and, and on our magazine, for there's, our magazine
0: and website. Brian, so. There, there's so many people that uh, have come up to me or that I've heard through the grapevine somewhere. Oh yeah. He's that guy that works with QDMA, you know, <laughs> of course not, it's NDA, but you know, for, for years uh, I heard that, but I, I, I will tell them, I don't work for NDA. I work with NDA. And there so, for example, whether it be the Dear Stewart course uh, series, whether it's the conventions that you know used to have, or whatever the platform, that's extension work. And so what I'm doing by working with the NDA is extending the research information. That we have gathered over the years, as well as that from other people, other researchers across the country, and delivering that to people, hopefully in a format and in a way that they can understand and use and help them to reach their objectives.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you're all, you've always been a, a kind of a, a crowd favorite. I know at our event. so we definitely uh, you know appreciate all you've all you've done for the NDA. Now. I know we we could talk about a whole host of of habitat related topics on here today that that you've worked with, but uh, as we mentioned early on, there we want to talk specifically about FSI or forest stand improvement. And I guess my first question about that is the term itself. Uh, for years, you know, I've read about TSI timber stand improvement and. And I probably even referred to it in some of the, the articles I've written, but but now the, the buzz phrase sure. seems to be FSI or forest stand improvement. So what what's kind of the difference there between the
0: two? Well, timber stand improvement is what it says. That encompasses a series of practices that you can use to improve a stand for the timber quality, whether that be volume, quality, merchantability, what have you. But I would bet that the vast majority of the listeners here are more interested in improving their forest or, of course, what we colloquially term our woods for deer. You know, how many times do I hear, what do I do to uh, make my woods better for deer? I mean, you, you just said that a while ago. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so you're not concerned primarily in improving the timber quality of your woods you're concerned about improving your woods in terms of habitat for deer. And then I put on top of that also the huntability for deer. So that has nothing necessarily to do with timber and how many landowners do I work with? They might be interested in a, in a certain look, you know, the aesthetics uh, they may be interested in any number of species other than deer. And so, You don't just manage your woods for the timber. There's lots of resources and values that you may be interested in beyond the timber. And so that obviously is more accurately termed forest stand improvement. And I'm reminded back in the mid 80s when I was an undergraduate and taking all these forestry classes, I took uh, about as many forestry classes as I did wildlife classes. And uh, I remember when I was finishing my undergraduate degree and evaluating the property that my family had in the Piedmont of North Carolina. And, and, you know, I had been planting food plots and uh, thinking about ways to improve the field. I hadn't gotten to all the herbicide uh, techniques in the mid, late 80s yet. And I started looking in the woods. And of course, I had learned all of this about regeneration. And so when you think about what you can do to your woods or your forest, you can either, to, to be very simple, you can either regenerate the stand or you can improve it. And regenerate it means to harvest the trees and to start the stand anew. So by definition then, your intention is to maintain a forest, but you have made the decision to harvest the trees and start it anew. And so the other uh, option is to improve what you have and you might not be ready to regenerate it for you know x y and z reasons of course on our property we were not interested in regenerating the trees and in many cases people don't even have enough woods enough trees in, in their woods to attract a logger to come and regenerate it anyway so i remember standing there in the woods with an old home-like chainsaw (laughs) thinking, you know, what am I going to do? I mean, I can't clear-cut this stand. You know, I've learned what that is. I've learned what a shelter wood, a group selection, a seed tree, uh, all of these different regeneration methods are and how they are employed. But I'm not going to do that. I'm not having a forester to come in here. And so in standing there looking at it, I also had learned in dendrology what all of the trees are. I knew my trees and I knew which trees were important for the species, the wildlife species that I was interested in. And I remember like it was yesterday, just standing there thinking, well, shoot, I'm just going to either cut down or kill these trees that are not doing anything for deer or squirrels or uh, turkeys or whatever the case may be. And, and I'll leave the other ones. I, I don't know of anything else to do. I mean, it, it literally was that simple. And so, as I mentioned, I didn't have the knowledge of herbicides at that time. And so I cut down a lot of trees. And I, I spent days and days and days doing it. And 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 I also girdled a lot of trees because girdling kills trees, right? Yeah. At least that's what I thought. <laughs> and so as I returned in, to the woods and, you know, as I I went back to where uh, my family was on on periodic visits, going down in the woods and seeing how this is all looking, I found out over the course of a year, these trees are not dying. And uh, so I got to digging in further and reading, oh, okay, you need to double girdle instead (laughs) of just single girdle. I went back and, again, spent many days double girdling. And I'm talking about a fresh double girdle on top of or, you know, Beneath that single girl that I already had uh, implemented on all of these trees throughout, you know, about three different stands only to come back later over time and again, find out, well, a few of them have died, but most of these are still alive. <laughs> and so it was at that time that I, I, I got to do something else. This this is not working. And that's when I began uh, looking into and experimenting with herbicides and what I needed to do to actually kill these trees. So, you know, fast forward to now, you know, over, you know, research and true experimentation, you know, uh, as I was a graduate student. And then, you know, once I became uh, a professor here at the University of Tennessee doing lots of experiments, you know, we fine tune that along the way. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's how all that started, at least with me. Figuring, I'm not going to cut down all my woods. I don't have anything enough here to really even attract a forester on some of these stands. So what can I do? And so I just started killing or cutting down trees that I didn't want and leaving the ones I did. To me, that's forest stand improvement.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what, I guess, what benefits will someone, and and we're going to assume, like you mentioned there, that, that we're talking to, Somebody whose goal is is better better deer habitat, better deer hunting on their property for this purpose, uh, what kind of benefits, I guess, are they going to see from forest stand improvement work? I mean, how, how's that going to kind of change the the look and, and use of their their woods?
0: Well, as in most things, there's no one-size-fits-all necessarily, and it's really, really fun in that there are lots of different techniques. And there's lots of levels at which you can implement forest stand improvement. For example, the primary thing that you are doing is manipulating the amount of sunlight that's coming into the stand. That's that's where the tire meets the road. That's the crux of what you're doing. Now, how much sunlight you allow to come into the stand has everything to do then with the composition of the plants that are in the stand and the structure of the plants that are in the stand and their structure is referring to the height and density of the vegetation. And so picture this. If you clear cut a hardwood stand and walked away, you're going to have anywhere from on average uh, 20 to 40,000 stems per acre within the second growing season. So that's really, really dense. Yeah. All right. On the flip side, if you go in and you only remove, you know, five trees per acre in an otherwise closed canopy stand, you may not realize any difference at all. You you might have only increased the amount of sunlight by two or three percent by doing so. And so somewhere between those extremes, you find out. Oh, okay. If I remove enough trees, and I'm talking about the overstory trees. If you remove all of the mid-story trees within a mature stand that has a closed canopy, you're going to go from about, on average, three to five percent sunlight up to about twelve to twenty percent sunlight. Twenty being most, and and usually it's going to be somewhere around twelve to fifteen percent sunlight. So you've got to remove some overstory trees. When you remove enough overstory trees that you have a minimum an absolute minimum of 20% sunlight coming into the stand. and, And really, let's bump that up to 30%. That's when you start seeing an appreciable increase in the understory response. And that understory response usually is mostly woody stems, small regenerating trees and shrubs with some herbaceous plants, but Usually not that much, and, and that's going to be somewhat site-dependent, but on a majority of sites, it's going to be uh, dominated by by woody species. That, that's okay. That's still increased browse, and that can be uh, enhanced fawning cover. That can be better nesting and brooding cover for turkeys, et cetera, et cetera. So if you then start removing enough trees that, okay, now I've got 50% sunlight coming in, then that response, number one, is going to be quicker and and that response is going to be is going to get taller sooner because of the increased sunlight and so you 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 quickly find out hmm I can influence the amount of growth and the response in the understory based on how much sunlight I'm putting into the stand. And again, I have to say, and you will see differences by sight. And I'm not just talking about, you know, this person's property versus that person's property or Kentucky versus Alabama versus Missouri. It, it's, it's more than that. I'm talking about the moisture regime, the, uh, the aspect, whether you're on a north facing aspect or a south facing aspect. You can see lots of differences just on any one individual property, but on average, you're going to see the response that most people are interested in with regard to increased deer food, the uh, browse and and forage available from Forbes in the understory by allowing somewhere around 30 to 50% sunlight into the stand. Now, I mentioned that there's lots of levels of this. So, OK, I want to take this section of woods and really designate it as a primary bedding area. And I've, I've often used the term a bedding block because I like to have areas or, or design, designate areas. It might be anywhere from like uh, five to 15 acres uh, in uh, this block. And I will make that very thick. So I will kill or cut down a lot more trees and I might allow at least, uh, 60, maybe even 80% sunlight to come in. And when I do that, it gets dog hair thick very quickly. And when that happens, you know what the deer are going to do. They're going to be in their thickest thieves. And so it's at that point with regard to, uh, the huntability, uh, for sure that, you when when I ask people where do the deer bed on your property, and then they kind of look at me, you know, uh, uh, and they got this confused look. Well, well, you should know where deer bed on your property, just like you know where deer eat on your property. And when you create these these bedding blocks, these thick areas, and of course, a deer will bed in an area that you know might only be a, a half acre of you know a uh, some brushy area, but that doesn't hold many deer if if you have a, a spot that's like five to 15 acres and there's nothing magic about that five to 15 acres, but through, you know, just personal experience and, and working on lots of different properties, that size, uh, does very, very well. And then you can distribute a few of those around instead of trying to distribute a few 25 to 50 acres. And, and I would not do that. that. That's too big. I won't get into that right now, but anyway, you can distribute these bedding blocks around. And so you know that deer are in those literally every day. It's it's amazing when we put cameras in there and see how, how much deer are using these spots. And then you can actually use that to hunt around with regard to where deer are coming from to get to a feeding area, for example, in the afternoon hunt or whatever, and according to wind direction and your access. And so there we go from improving the stand primarily for the forage to improving the stand primarily for the bedding cover. So I just tried to go through a wide range of uh, allowing different levels of sunlight to come in to match different objectives because there can be specific objectives for which you're using forest stand improvement for. Right.
1: As far as if a person... Say, maybe they, they do have some concern with that future timber value, or, or maybe that's their primary concern with a secondary interest in, in improving
0: their deer hunting. Is, is FSI
1: still a, a viable option?
0: Well, sure. And, uh, you know, even if you're strictly concentrating on timber stand improvement, so you are going in and you might be, for example, killing trees that are surrounding what we call your crop trees. Crop tree release is a term for that crop tree release would be a form of timber stand improvement, and so you are improving conditions for your crop trees as you do that, you also are allowing what to enter the stand sunlight there you go <laughs> so I mean um, and, and it's interesting and there are there are a few exceptions, but it's interesting that when you improve a stand for deer, by and large, and I mentioned there are exceptions, but by and large, you are removing relatively low-value trees and retaining higher-value trees with regard to uh, the timber quality. That's not always the case, but oftentimes it is. Yeah. So, so to answer your question explicitly, absolutely, you can improve your uh, wood, your forest stand, specifically for timber. And at the same time, I'll say even coincidentally sometimes, you're also improving conditions for deer, whether that's for uh, uh, forage or fawning cover, what have you. Yeah. Now,
1: let's say, okay, somebody, they're interested in, in doing some forest stand improvement work. Uh, now, you know, in my case, as we talked about earlier, you know, I have a small property. In fact, just six or seven acres of it in hardwood. so... Uh, deciding where to start really isn't an issue for me but for the guy that might be working with a larger tract of land you know a hundred acres five hundred acres what kind of consideration should they take in deciding kind of where to where to start their efforts
0: well how do you start where to plant a food plot you know you you how do you eat an elephant you know it's just <laughs> one bite at the time and so if you have a large property what uh, you know, I strongly suggest people to do is you break that property up into compartments. And so then you're managing each compartment based on your objectives. And you're taking it one compartment at the time. And so if you've broken up a property with regard to pro- compartments for deer management or whatever wildlife species, but we're talking about deer here, then think about the... uh The biology of deer and how large of an area an individual deer spends its time on during the year on your property. And then you begin to break up this property based on where individual deer are occurring and their uh, seasonal and annual home ranges, for example. And so you might have compartments that are 50 to 100 acres. And on each of those fifty to hundred acres, and you know each property is a little different. I want to have good bedding cover. I want to have natural forage available. I might have some food plots. I might uh, at least have uh, try to have a water source at least within every uh, four hundred yards or so apart. So I, I then begin to break the property. Considering, and, and to me, I, I really do this based on uh, seasonal core home range use, which GPS studies across the country have identified is actually the 50% core area home range of adult does with fawns and of adult bucks is only about 35 to 50 acres. And so, you know, that, that's pretty small. And so if I blow that up a little bit and I try to provide at least everything a deer would need through the year on every 100 acre crudely shaped and uh, uh, separated block, and I'm not talking about you know squares or rectangles or circles, but you know roughly every 100 acres. Then you're kind of maximizing the property at that time for deer. You you have good bedding cover. Dispersed throughout the property, you have natural forage. You might have food plots, et cetera, et cetera. And then, according to your access, you know the network of trails or roads or whatever. Look at all of the different opportunities you then have with regard to uh, huntability, and it it, it works. It, it works really well. And when people start designing their property like this, then it really answers those questions as to where do I start and uh, where where you give your priority. So I I just take it one bite at a time and do that compartment by compartment on those large properties.
1: Yeah. Now I know there's, there's a lot of variables involved with, with, you know, how much ground you can cover doing this FSI work, but for just a guy that's, you know, he's breaking his property up in these blocks and he, he's kind of planning on, on what he wants to accomplish. Uh what what can an individual I guess how many acres can they hope to impact in, you know, a weekend of work or a couple weekends of work or doing yeah. an FSI. And, work? and of
0: course that's totally dependent on the STEM density. Uh I was with uh let's see what one, two, three for three of my graduate students last week on a property and and we were doing some of this and uh the stand one of the stands that we were working in was pretty dense. And and we didn't get the uh, the amount of area covered that I would like to see, just because there were there were a lot of trees to treat in there. But when you consider a closed canopy stand and the tree density in a closed a mature uh, closed canopy stand, doesn't matter if this is in Wisconsin or Central Alabama. Okay. So, you know, I often hear people say, well, you know, that's true in the South, but no, 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 no. (laughs) This is true in New York. This is true in Wisconsin. This is true where you have uh, those stands along the drainages in in Eastern Kansas, you know, wherever you are, this is true. Okay. So if you're looking at closed canopy uh, stands, and and let's center this on hardwoods for right now and, and not pines, on average, one person and a buddy one person running a a chainsaw. Now you can use a a hatchet or a machete if you want for hacking squirt, but I prefer to use a small chainsaw because there will be some trees that I want to cut down and I can't do that with a machete. So I have a small chainsaw. It works amazingly well. I got a a partner there that's uh, got the squirt bottle. And, you know, if we're, if we're doing hinge cutting in some area, we might have, you know, uh, a push pole or, Uh, a a rope with a hook or something. You you need somebody to help, although I do a lot of this by myself. But with uh, one person and and a buddy, a partner there, you can normally cover, on average, somewhere in the neighborhood of six to eight acres in a day. And that's not bad. And I'm not talking about a long summer day. That's, you know, it's very comfortable for people to go out after deer season, you know, before uh, spring green up, And you're out there doing some woods work in the winter and on, you know, a a, a nice, comfortable winter day, you know, maybe uh, blue skies and kind of cold temperatures. It feels good to be outside. You can you can make a big difference on at least five and in some cases up to 10 acres in in one day's time with you and you and a partner. And that's I think that's fairly significant.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that that'll cover everything I need to do on my property in a well, day's it, time. So yeah. I'll
0: tell you what: if you have 15 acres of woods, Brian, and it's and it's, and it's all woods, and it's just you, uh, even with varying density, I guarantee you, once you get started and you kind of see, okay, here's here's what I'm doing, and and you kind of get the get the uh you know get the feel of it, uh, you will have that property, the first level of it. You're never done. But you have the first level of that done in easy five days worth of work. You know, that, that's just three acres in one day. You, you can do that with no problem. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and here's something else that's true, whether it be with food plots or old field management or whatever. It doesn't have to be perfect. You're, you're never done. And I've said this many times, as long as the sun shines and the rain falls, you're going to have to continue to manage vegetation because it continues to grow. And when we're managing habitat for deer, you're talking about managing food and cover, which is the vegetation. And that, that's, that's a lifestyle. That's, that's not an event, so you're never done. But that first phase of getting this going in the direction that you want it, you could have that accomplished, I don't think, with any problem with a three to five days' work. Good deal. Now you mentioned
1: there, you know, doing, doing this in, in the winter, uncomfortable day in the winter. Is there any, I mean, is there certain time only to do FSI work Can it be done year round or what's, what's the.
0: No, you, you can do this year round and we do. And as we commonly mention, the exception is if you girdle some of those trees such as the maples, for example, in uh, early spring right before the leaves pop out and the sap is really flowing you girdle that tree and literally the sap is running out of that girdle well obviously at that point the effectiveness of any herbicide that is sprayed into that wound is going to be compromised because it's being flushed out by the sap but other than that you can do it any time of year and Uh, probably the next question is how long does it take for these trees to die? And so if you do this in the spring, then those trees, all of them, are going to leaf out. You might see a few of them die through the summer, but a lot of them will persist through the summer. And by the time the leaves begin to finesse, those trees that you treated will be done and they will not leaf out the following spring. If you do this in summer, the same thing happens. If you do it in fall, the same thing happens. If you do it in winter, then most of those trees that you treated will leaf out, but they then will begin to wilt up and die through the course of summer. And then, as I mentioned, once you get into spring doing it, 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 just, takes, it, it just takes a few to several months for the trees to, to die. And uh, of course, there's differences a little bit by, by species. Um, for example eastern red cedar if if you go and girdle and spray some large eastern red cedar uh, th- they'll hang on for a while they, they oftentimes will have some green remaining in the needles for for a year but but they're slowly going down it, it's uh at, at least uh, that that's been my experience over time that uh, that's one that that's slow to die
1: yeah okay so let's let's say i've Blocked out my property here. I've kind of picked my starting point. Um, I, I head into the woods with the chainsaw. I, I guess the, the million dollar question is now, which trees do I, how do I decide which trees to remove and, and which
0: ones I'm going to leave? Well, you know, that's based on your objectives. And so if you're wanting more browse, then if you fail or cut down the tree, then that tree is going to sprout. We're talking about hardwoods here. And so if you don't want that tree to sprout, then of course you would spray the stump. And in spraying the stump, I'm talking about spraying the the cambium layer, that layer just inside the bark around the stump. You don't have to spray the the center of the stump. And then that stump will not sprout out. And so I do that with species that deer don't typically select as, as browse. For those species that deer do typically select, for browse, I will leave those and, and allow them to sprout, you know, especially things like the alms and black gum, uh, red maple, or at least most of them. Uh, but, you know, things like hickory and sweet gum and uh, sycamore, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, sugar maple. You know, deer will eat some of that, but that's not a really highly selected browse. And before somebody writes in, deer eat sugar maple all the time on my property, they well, <laughs> I could kind of guess what's on your property also. And, you know, I'm not trying to be offensive there, but you, you have to think about availability. And I mentioned that because you can cut down a hickory tree. And, oh my gosh, many times I've seen deer devour the hickory leaves off of sprouts coming up off of hickory stumps. But when there are many other things available that they would rather have, of course, you won't see them browsing on hickory as often then. So always keep availability in mind when we discuss what deer select. Uh, Black cherry is another. Uh, Certainly deer will eat black cherry uh, sprouting, Um, but that's not going to be a highly selected one when there are some other things that are more favorable present. Uh, th- th- but there's, there's lots of examples of that. Yeah. Now,
1: now in my case, you know, I, I have some trees that are, it's kind of obvious, you know, to remove, to go and remove plenty of, or not plenty, but I got, you know, some sweet gum. And of course, like you mentioned, I got quite a bit of, of hickory, poplar, that kind of stuff. But I also have a lot of nice white and red oaks, um, some beech trees, you know, mass producers, if I don't cut some of those, I'm not gonna make a whole lot of progress. You know, I'm not gonna get a lot of sunlight on the forest floor. So what I guess what's the criteria there? How do how do I go about choosing which of those mass producers to keep and which ones to to take out?
0: Um of course, you would want to select more of the oaks to keep because the acorns is such an important food source in, in fall and winter. And you would want to have a variety of oak species, not to concentrate on any one or two, but to have a variety of good overstory oak species of of mass bearing age that, that you're selecting for. And then go down from there. Uh, you know, and, and again, it's also dependent on what all is in the stand, but I'm certainly selecting oaks over most of the beaches and there's nothing that casts more shade uh, other than a hemlock really than, than, than beach. And so they can have a, a strong negative effect on the understory response where you have a lot of beach and beach is not as frequent of a mass producer quite as, as the oaks are. Uh, but now I will leave. You know the occasional beach here and there in in these mixed stands. Um, of course, I'm not selecting uh, to keep sweet gum or or many non-mass producers, especially if there are mass producers there nearby. Don't overlook the soft mass producers such as the. Uh, mulberries, persimmons, service berries, and, and deer certainly will will eat the cherries a, a little bit. So, you know, I, I like to have a variety of things in my woods. Uh, I also look at the crowns of the tree. Um, that can be a little tricky because, as as we've discussed before, you can't look at a. Of a tree, an individual, whether it be an oak or what have you, entail if that individual is a good mass producer or not there 's no physical characteristic that will tell you whether that tree is a good mass producer or not. You simply have to go and and look at the trees when the mast is is fallen and see, okay, is this pr- tree producing or not and so and that can be a little tricky also because scarlet oaks. Are not going to throw acorns at the same rate or time as white oaks, and so if you're evaluating the various red oaks in your stand, you've got to do that during a year when those trees, you know, whether it's black oaks or northern reds or southern reds, scarlets, what have you, are, are throwing acorns, and and evaluate those trees then. And then for the those in the white oak group, the white oaks, post oaks, chestnut oaks, what have you, you've got to look at those trees during the years that that species is is producing uh, a lot. And then you can begin to see, okay, this is a good acorn year. You know, let's just say for white oaks. There's, there's white oak acorns falling all over. But wow, here is a really nice tree, you know, quote, nice. I don't know why we use that term, but <laughs> it's nice looking, you know, uh, straight, good crown, but there's not an acorn under it. That that is, that is more common than what you might think. And when you do that, then you can see if you're in a relatively small woodlot. Now, you're not going to do this over, you know, 300 acres, but over a small woodlot that many people have, you can e- literally evaluate the acorn potential of individual trees by looking at them during good acorn years. And that allows you to see which trees you need to keep for acorn production and which ones that you could take out because, even though it's an acorn producing or fruit producing species, this individual really doesn't uh, produce much uh, to anything. And you can select those stronger individuals. Now, all that being said, if I'm working in an area that's so large that, you know, I, I, I don't have time to do that. Uh, and, and on average, it's going to wash out anyway, because there's going to be enough of those that I release that are going to be good ones and and you've got to meter that with the importance of the sunlight that you're introducing into the stand. And so when I'm doing that, those that have those little scraggly crowns or hardly any crown at all, that's an easy decision. And so you're tending to favor those that have better form. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I guess is there any concern? Should I should I be worried about leaving some smaller, you know, pole sized oaks in there? or i mean i guess my thought is that if i'm if i'm cutting everything down and just leaving these large oak mass producers at at some point you know those are going to die off and then there's there's nothing left there to to take their place so is that is that and, a concern
0: uh, the answer is is yes and yes so let's say for example i have a a mixed hardwood stand that has a variety of species including oaks and and you mentioned oaks And I literally cut down every mid-story tree and I cut down or kill enough overstory trees such that I am allowing 50% sunlight into the stand. And then I use low-intensity prescribed fire to maintain the structure, a relatively low structure, and a composition, which understory plant species are present, that favors deer forage. Then I would be burning that stand, and let's, it doesn't have to be great big. let you know how, how big a food plot do you have? And so let's just say I've blocked off five acres of woods, and I've treated five acres this way, and I've taken a leaf blower. How simple is that? And I've blown a fire break around you know this this five acre block, and I'm burning that stand with very low intensity using you know back in fire with four to six-inch flame lengths, and I'm burning this stand every one to three years, depending on plant response. Once you have burned that stand seven or eight times, (laughs) you still (laughs) will have so many oak seedlings coming up in there. All you have to do is back off on your fire frequency to then allow those seedlings to come on up and become saplings. And then you will have regeneration and, and you, you will continue to have woody sprouts throughout the time that you are managing those woods in, in that way. And so that's if you're using fire. If you're not using fire, then uh, think about this. You have killed the species that you do not desire. That's a good thing. right? And, and so they're not casting seed, whatever they may be into that stand. And mm-hmm. and for, for folks down South, this is so important with regard to sweet gum, which, which can be, you know, a, a real struggle to fight. Mm-hmm. And so people say, well, they just keep on coming in here, keep on coming in here, whether it's in the woods or when you're managing a field. And, and I ask, well, did you kill all the mama trees? <laughs> what? Well, you know, look right over there. I can look right over there and see four or five that are anywhere from 18 to 22 inches in diameter. They're huge. I mean, they're literally raining seed in here every year. And so if you kill those trees that are not desirable and they stop throwing seed into the specific area you're trying to manage, what species are left that are throwing seed into the area you're trying to manage? Yeah. Yeah. This is not difficult. It's the ones (laughs) you left, which are desirable ones. And so those seed are going to germinate and become seedlings. And so as long as you have trees there, you're going to have regeneration coming up over time. And then what you have done is you have just improved the stand for your objectives because you have steered, you have influenced the composition of the trees that are in the stand. And, and the exact same thing, Brian, is what we do when we're managing early successional communities. We are simply killing the plants in the field that we don't want instead of planting the species we do want. We're just killing the stuff that we don't want and letting let nature take course and, and take care of the rest. And it is amazing at how well that happens. And, and I, I know it's almost like too simple, too good to be true. But this is literally one case where you can have your cake and eat it too in this early succession management. And I know we're not talking about this on this phone call, but anyway, uh, it, it's it's so interrelated. Uh, when, when you really start looking at plant communities and how you can manage them simply by removing the species you don't want and allowing the ones that you do want to continue to pioneer in, grow, colonize, develop. It it happens right before your eyes. And now you're never done. Uh, You know, I'm thinking about invasive species, non-native stuff that you don't want. And people say, well, I I can't really uh, take out trees in these woods because if I do, I'm just going to have Japan grass or barberry or oriental bittersweet or X, Y, and Z. So what does that mean? You can't, you can't do anything. No, what that means is there's just a different level of management that you have to, have to employ the same way as if you're managing fields. How did those invasive species get there? Well, either by wind, water, or animals. So if you get rid of them, do you think they're never coming back? Of course they are. So that's just all part of your management, uh, tending to controlling to a certain level, the invasive species, the undesirable species. That's why I say you're never done. And at least for me, this is so much about attitude because forever, you know, I have you know, my personality is such that it's got to be done right. It's got to be done 100%. It's got to be done the best that it ever possibly can be. And so when I'm managing, you know, let's say a particular woodlot and, after two or three years, I see more oriental bittersweet coming back in. I can't get frustrated. I used to, <laughs> but I can't get frustrated because you know why? Birds continue to fly into those woods and drop oriental bittersweet seed. Right. That's going to happen from here on out, unless I cut down all the trees. That's going to continue to happen. And so I, I have adapted and learned and then changed my personality or my attitude such that I understand, wow, Okay. In managing this stand, one of the things that that involves is periodic control of invasive species, and that's really no different than my periodic control, whether it be undesirable native species that are in here. So it's just it's just vegetation management.
1: Yeah. So never never ending process. But uh, you mentioned you know burning uh, versus not burning and and. You know, still get eventually getting the desired results. Uh, I certainly you know plan to follow my FSI work back here on on my small place with a burn because uh, I got years and years of you know hardwood leaf litter in there. But you know, if I couldn't, or for the person that just for whatever reason they they can't get in there and burn, maybe they're you know in a in a industrial area or yeah, near a major yeah. highway or for whatever reason, yeah, c- lots of places. It will. FSI
0: still provides some benefits? Absolutely. And here are the two differences as I see it. Um, prescribed fire is so very efficient with regard to setting back succession and helping you maintain that structure that you want. If you can't use fire, then you're going to have to use another disturbance technique. And in woods, That's probably going to be either a chainsaw or some type of herbicide application. So you're going to, as trees grow, you know these little saplings, uh, these little seedlings become saplings, and you know on average after about six to eight years, they're going to get up to a height that deer cannot no longer reach the leaves of them, and they're going to get up to to a height where they are shading out that understory response. And so you're going to have to set that back. And if you can't use fire, then that means additional uh, mechanical or chemical control. And mechanical in the woods generally means, means a chainsaw. Now, that's one thing. The other thing is the composition. You are not likely to achieve the same nutritional impact for deer if you cannot use prescribed fire. Because your response in woods typically is going to be dominated by woody sprouts. And those woody sprouts, on average, are not as nutritious, not nearly as nutritious, as forbs. And when you can use prescribed fire, you then are able to convert or change that composition from being dominated by woody species to dominate it by forbs. And that is exceptionally difficult if you cannot use fire. Fire does that naturally. It controls the woody stuff. It consumes the leaf litter. It allows the seed bank that's under there to germinate and grow. And it stimulates the seed of those forbs to germinate. It favors many, many different legume species that are so very nutritious and so very highly selected by deer. And so on average, when you can use prescribed fire, you're going to realize a greater nutritional carrying capacity a greater nutritional benefit let's say for deer as opposed to not using fire but even if you can't use fire and you're only using a chainsaw or you're doing some selective spot spraying with a backpack in your woods or ATV or, or what have you you can make great differences you can you can you know easily uh Triple or increase by four or fivefold the amount of beer food, but the quality on average is not going to be as great as if you can do that with fire
1: okay but but that thick leaf litter you'll still get an understory response then is that going is it going to slow it down? Is it going to be a slower response than you would see
0: no the the woody the woody stuff is going to sprout and, and and come up through all all you need is the sunlight okay, but if you cannot use fire. Don't expect near the herbaceous response as, right. as when when you can use fire. Uh, that's that's when, you know, there's there's dramatic change taking place after you've been able to burn a stand, uh, especially four or five times. And, you know, to burn a stand four or five times, most often, you know, that's requiring like eight to 10 years. So, you know, this is not you know, in, immediate, uh, what the effect of one fire th- does not change the world, but, but once you, you start burning on a fairly regular basis and, and you learn a little something about when to burn and how your timing of burn can influence the, the plant composition, uh, you, you can really get a lot a- out of your woods. And, and especially if you're allowing, uh, you know, in the neighborhood of about 50% sunlight in there. Gotcha. You're almost. You can think of it this way: you're almost managing a an old field with a lot of uh, overstory trees in it. See what I'm saying? Right. yeah. Now, and, and that that would be defined as a woodland, not a forest, but a woodland. And and these these woodlands can be extremely uh, valuable, both in terms of food and cover for for deer and 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 also turkeys. I know most folks who are managing their property for for deer also have an interest in turkeys. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Now we, we've talked about, you know, the ways to, to take these trees down, or at least you, you've touched on those. Of course, you know, you can just simply go in and, and cut them down with a chainsaw. And then you've mentioned the, uh, the girdle and squirt method. Can you kind of run us through that? The, the exactly how to, how to do the, the girdle and
0: squirt correctly and, and what kind of herbicides you're using for that? Um, yeah, I, I just use a, a small chainsaw, like a, a steel 180. I get nothing from steel, but that's a, a, a really nice chainsaw. The weight is is, is great. Uh, they're not very expensive. I use the, uh, the upper edge of, of the bar and walk around in a counterclockwise motion around the tree. And you're just cutting such that you are getting inside the bark layer. You're not cutting you know, very deep at all, you know, usually this is uh, certainly less than one inch um, on on some large species, with really thick bark. It might be, you know, an, an inch or so, but on the vast majority of cases, you're only talking about, you know, a quarter to a half inch deep cut all the way around the tree. And then you just take a spray bottle that has an herbicide mixture and, and whether it's you or a, or a buddy there, you're just spraying that girdle all the way around with the mixture and as you know, I've written and we've talked about, we use a 50% solution of a triclopyr herbicide. We use Garlon 3A, which is the amine formulation of triclopyr, 50% Garlon 3A, 40% water, and 10% Arsenal AC, which contains amazapyr. And if you treat a tree with that mixture, you're going to kill it. Uh, regardless of the tree species and before you ask no there is no uh, effect on non-target trees <laughs> if it's a if it's a clone yes but usually not even then uh, will you see uh, adjacent stems die but uh, it's it's very very low incident well it, it's zero insta- in, uh, zero effect on a non-target unless it is literally on the same root root system. Uh, now, I would not broadcast spray a in my woods because, of course, a is soil active and that can be taken up by the roots and you're going to damage or kill a lot of trees that you don't want to. But at that rate and technique that I just described, you will not harm non-target species. In fact, you can take, uh, let's say, for an example, an oak that has two or three main stems. You know, it, it's one stem at the bottom, but it branches out, you know, maybe uh, one to three feet above ground. You follow me? Yep. You can girdle one of those stems and spray it with that mixture that I just described. You will kill that stem, but you will not kill the other one or two. So hmm. it, it's, it's extremely selective. And uh, the, the concern... Over killing non-target species is is totally unwarranted when using this mixture in in that method. And you know if, if people don't mix it correctly, or if they you know spray a bunch of it out on the ground and whatever else, you know that's that's a different story. But uh, you know all you need is enough spray in that wound to moisten that wound uh, that you've girdled all the way around, and then you'll kill the tree.
1: And and how are you choosing? I guess which trees to girdle and squirt versus just cutting them, you know, dropping them.
0: Um, you know, there's there's the, the mixture of herbicide is science. Which trees to spray and nod and fail or whatever that that's more art. And uh, you know, I tell people, I guarantee you, you have a, a, a better sense of art than I do. You're a better <laughs> artist than than I am. But that's part of the fun of it. And so if I'm, and, and again, it depends on, 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 objectives, but if I see a, an undesirable tree species and it's a large stem, let's say, you know, 18 inches and above, for example, well, that's, that's usually a very easy decision. I'm just going to girdle that one and kill it and, and leave it standing. Number one, it's going to take a little time. Uh, it there's, you know, a certain amount, there's a certain amount of danger in, in any of this, but cutting, felling larger trees on average is more dangerous than, than smaller ones. Plus, look at all of the material that you have just dumped onto the ground. And so you can clutter uh, the area up at that ground level quite a bit by, by felling a whole lot of trees. And so there's, in my opinion, art with regard to how much debris do you put down near the ground and still allow deer to get through that area very easily. And so when we're combining felling and girdling as well as hinge cutting, then I will leave these these corridors and lanes through the stand that, that deer can move in, in various directions. And, and it is amazing to watch how they use that, like, like highways. And so I'm not trying to just clutter up everything as if, you know, a tornado uh, went through the area, even if I'm trying to create a, a bedding block. But uh, if I'm just treating a stand and trying to get increased forage, if it's one of those species that... Deer like to eat the browse, And let's say, for example, the the main stem is about the the size of your leg or so, uh, and 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 smaller. Yeah, I'll cut that down and and allow those those uh, stumps to sprout. And and true to form has been reported; those uh, sprout leaves are. Much higher in mineral content, you know. Uh, Marcus Lashley and Bronton talking about the mineral stumps. Well, that's that's absolutely true. And when you look at the uh, the content of the sprout leaves versus that of the uh, the crown leaves, there's a big difference. And so there's a lot of importance there, in my opinion, with regard to uh, cutting a certain percentage of trees down to provide the browse that can be very important. And and even if it's not a species that deer like to browse, of course, that stump is going to sprout. And that leads to vertical structure, which is very good with regard to reducing the visibility, improving the the cover, whether it be for fawning or adult bedding or what have you. So uh, I, I don't base whether I spray a stump or not just on the food value but also uh in those stands where i'm wanting more vertical structure i'm going to leave more of the stumps unsprayed so i will get those sprouts
1: okay yeah so if i was setting up a uh, the finger of a ridge for bedding then uh, i would probably i would want to spray or not spray i guess uh, as many of those stumps to create vertical structure Then
0: Ab- absolutely and, and, and in which case in in those instances, the only stumps that I'm going to spray are those of species that I really don't want. Uh, you know, and, and a lot of times that might be an invasive species or, uh, uh, or what have you. But if you really don't want that species in there, then, then spray it. But other than that, those, those sprouts certainly are going to serve as, as vertical structure that helps hold deer in that area. And, you know, I, I hesitate to say this, you know, the poor old sweet gum, it gets so much hate. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if you, if you got a stand of sweet gum and you can see through there, you know, 80 yards or what have you, and you cut those trees down and you allow the, the sweet gums to sprout up, well, guess what? Deer are going to bed in there. So, you know, make some lemonade out of the lemons, you know, just because you got a, a lot of sweet gum. If, if you can cut those down and, and get the sprouts coming up, uh, I, I have certainly killed plenty of deer coming out of a sweet gum thicket that uh had been cut, you know, three or four years prior. And and those are the bedding areas that, that the deer selected. So it's it's all based on uh your objectives and uh the availability of what's on your property.
1: Yeah. Now I guess one of my concerns as I've started into this is going back in here and and girdling and squirting all these big mature trees. A- am I creating a, a hazardous situation for myself by creating all these, uh, these deadfalls, I guess, or
0: no, I don't know how else to answer that. I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to walk into the stand when, the, when the wind's blowing 20 miles an hour, <laughs> you know, uh, about nine or 10 months after I I killed a whole bunch of them. But, but, but no, uh, I mean, Lightning could strike any one of them. <laughs> right. I'm certainly not. I'm certainly not going to avoid killing <laughs> trees in my woods to help me meet my objectives, uh, because I'm afraid a, a limb might fall on me later. So, so no. Gotcha.
1: Now, what about hinge cutting? Where does that fall into all this? It Seems like that was all the rage for a while. Um, don't hear quite as much about it these days. Is there still some some benefit to hinge cutting trees?
0: Well, absolutely. and and I, I think that is a practice that is is misunderstood by a lot of people. and uh, of course, it can be applied in a number of ways. And I think as a practice, it has been, you know, beat up, so to speak, by foresters to an, to an extent that is unwarranted. However, when you walk into some stands, especially relatively young developing stands, and people have gone in and hinge cut virtually every tree, I could see where a forester would say, well, you've destroyed this stand. But then my response would be, how is this different than if somebody aerial sprayed this stand? How is this different than if somebody took a bulldozer and cleared this stand out because they wanted a field there?" The bottom line is the landowner is paying the property taxes, and so if the landowner wants a dense thicket that is created by hinge cutting and, and bending over the trees, then that's their prerogative. Now, that's certain. That certainly could help. Uh, that certainly could hurt your regeneration with regard to the future timber value of that stand. That that's inarguable. But if the landowner has made the decision that that's how they want to treat that area, well, well, that's that's their resource that that they, they own that, and so I think a lot of times that practice has been beaten up because uh, of of largely a misunderstanding and how it has been applied in many instances. But I just stated that I worked with some graduate students on a stand, uh, a couple stands last week. And, and we were doing a lot of hinge cutting because the landowner was really interested in making this. It was about an eight acre stand and making this into a bedding block. And so we were hinge cutting a lot of oaks, hickories, a few uh, maples. Uh, there were some cherry in there, you know, relatively small about the size of your calf or whatever that, you know, we cut down for some brows. But I remember saying to the landowner, now, according to who walks in here and looks at this, they're going to accuse you of ruining the stand. <laughs> I said, I said, but I, I want you to do something. Look at the trees that we left, all of the overstory trees that had good form. And then we probably uh, reduced the the canopy closure down to about I'm going to say we probably allowed about 40% sunlight in there. But what we did was we helped the the landowner meet his objective because we hinge cut the trees at a level that literally blocked visibility. (laughs) We did this over two days. And on day two, when we went in there, one of the graduate students said, Look, and there were deer beds with <laughs> droppings right there next to trees that we had just hinged the day before, and so we created immediate horizontal structure that the deer flock to, like bass or crappie around a, a <laughs> you know a, a brush pile in a pond. That's exactly what happens, but we did not destroy or even the de- uh, degrade the stand because what we did was we hinged the undesirable species as well as the suppressed individuals of desirable species. And those overstory species that we left were desirable species of desirable form, of mass producing age. And how is that different if we hinged those trees that we did versus cutting them off at the stump and spraying them? You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the seed source for the desirable species is still there. Right. All we did was influence the structure such that deer would bed in that stand per the landowner's request and his objectives. And so we, we didn't destroy the stand. We didn't hurt it. We improved it for his objectives, and we did so by a combination of cutting, girdling and spraying, and hinge cutting. But if various people were to walk by there, they would, you know, <laughs> oh my gosh, I can't believe you did this. But you know, it's it's just a matter of, of perspective, I guess. Right.
1: Well, Doctor Harper, I, I could talk uh, I could talk deer habit all day, but I did promise you I'd try to keep it to an hour, and uh, I want to respect your time. So we'll we'll go ahead and and wrap this one up, and hopefully, maybe we can get you back on here at another time to to cover some other habitat related topics.
0: But oh yeah, no no problem whatsoever, Brian. Always good to talk to you and, and fun to talk about this stuff and uh hope you have a good rest of the season and a very merry christmas coming
1: up yep to you as well and i, I do want to mention that uh dr harper has a, an excellent booklet on forest stand improvement covers everything we've discussed here in detail and more and i think that's available through the university of tennessee website isn't it
0: yes uh if, if someone were to just search for my name and University of Tennessee you'll see a link for uh, my my webpage and kind of scroll down and there will be icons for various publications that'll be one of them and then there's tabs that uh, you know you could click on that would take you to other publications by topics so you know there's There's a fair number of resources there, but the one on forest and improvement is down towards the bottom of the opening page. And If you click on that icon, it will take you to a point where you could either uh, read, download, or purchase a hard copy.
1: Okay. Well, good deal. We'll we'll be sure to include a link to that in the show notes so folks can can check that out. And uh, again, I just thank you for your time, Craig. And uh, yeah, I hope you have a, a Merry Christmas as well. Absolutely. Appreciate it, Brian. Talk to you later. Yep. Talk to you later. All right, guys, that wraps up our interview with Dr. Craig Harper. Uh, thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, and, and several more. So about anywhere. You could listen to uh, listen to podcasts. You should be able to find us there. Uh, Or you can just go to DeerAssociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, Hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the the podcasting charts and be more visible to uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website again at deerassociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. And you can become a member and don't forget about that podcast promo code that we talked about at the beginning of the show to get you a little bit of a discount on an annual membership and that free NDA hat. So be sure to take advantage of that and uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of of free content right there on our website covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, If it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.